You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Monster House presents... Monster Talk is an independent podcast production of Monster House, LLC. You can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. We want to grow our Monster Talk audience... And the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews on iTunes. Positive reviews have a huge impact and only take a moment. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk and look through their incredible collection for your selection. Download and start listening on your phone, computer, or tablet. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. In the January edition of the 2020 40 in Times, there's an article about a peculiar bit of paranormal history written by my co-host, Dr. Karen Stolzno, or as she likes to say, just Karen. She's been working on this piece for a while, and I was excited to sit down with her and talk about her research. We love interviewing people, but Karen and I also like doing our own investigations, and hopefully we'll be having a lot of that kind of content this year. That is our plan anyway. Both of us have been dealing with a lot of dramatic life events throughout the last of 2019 and sadly well into 2020 so far, and this has made getting the episodes out the door a little tougher than usual, but we thank you for your patience. Now, I could give you one of those itemized lists of all the stuff that's gone wrong, but A, that's no fun, and B, that is exactly the kind of exercise that makes you start to believe in curses. It is such an easy thing to slip into. Grouping phenomena and finding connections to them. Each individual thing going on has its own cause, but if you look at them all together, thoughts like, well, now that's a string of bad luck, or maybe there's something to this curse concept, start to pop into your mind. It's so easy to start down that road, but it's really difficult to get off of it. So, not itemizing. So also with ghost cases. We've mentioned it before, but it's worth mentioning again before we get into this story. Hauntings are usually treated like syndromes. They're a collection of symptoms, but that's not really a root cause. And calling the cause ghosts or poltergeists is really a dead end, since nobody knows what those words even mean, other than as social constructs or possibly as explanations themselves of perhaps the deadest of dead ends. No, it's definitely better to look at the individual phenomena and try to find out what's behind each one, because clustering this stuff into curses or hauntings doesn't get you any closer to the actual root cause of the experiences. 
Of course, it doesn't mean the stories aren't intriguing, even if you remove the possibility of a supernatural cause, which is why we do so enjoy sitting down for some monster talk. So, Happy New Year, Karen. (laughs) Happy New Year, yeah, even though we're well into it. I mean, at this point, what is it, 16th today? I had someone wish me a Happy New Year today, and I thought, you know, we're getting on that kind of cusp of it being too late to say Happy New Year now, or do you think it's still acceptable within range? I I don't write a column about, you know, how to behave, but if I did... (laughs) If I just were just to count, you're not Mister Etiquette. I am not. I, I'm more like Mister Regretiquette. But the point is, <laughs> if <laughs> if there were something like just chronicling what I do, I say Happy mm-hmm. New Year pretty much all the way through January, and I basically gauge when to stop saying it by the way people mm-hmm. look at me when I say it. So right now, I'm still at the okay, sure, Happy New Year. Maybe you're yeah, not mocking me or whatever, you know, well, so that's, 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 it's probably about. okay if you're saying it to someone like in our situation where we haven't, I mean, we've texted a lot, but we haven't yeah. uh, spoken uh, like this in this capacity this year. This is the first time. So I think that's fair enough. My 20th wedding anniversary is coming up. So like, uh, we're like uh, the 29th well, of January. So wow. just, just a few days away. Congratulations. Yeah, I know. If you make it. Exactly. <laughs> Still I swear. Touch and go. <laughs> I swear. Kathleen's like, can I throw this out? No, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Better don't, be on your best just, behavior. Just, just hold. <laughs> we can make this. We can do this. Just be careful. Yeah. Take, take mm-hmm. no risks. So I don't know. I just want to get through it. You know? <laughs> that, You'll get that, there. There's, a, there's your marriage book. I just want to get through it. <laughs> I think that's a book that many people would want to buy and would would understand. It's like the opposite of I'm not that into her. I'm totally into her. Um, <laughs> but I, sometimes just the daily drudge of life can wear one down. And Absolutely. when it does, you know what I like to do? Talk about to ghosts. Drink? To, well, okay, to drink, <laughs> drink and, and talk, talk about, about ghosts, ghosts, which is what I'm doing right now, right? <laughs> You're living the dream. I'm living it. I'm. It's happening. It's just me, you, tequila, and ghosts. Let's hit it. Ghosts, yeah. <laughs> Australian ghosts. Well, I say time. ghosts. Or, you know, we're going to be talking about one of our favorite topics here. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that we're <clears throat> serious. Um, yeah, poltergeists. I, I think, when I, as a skeptic, when I think about what would it take to convince me this stuff is real, mm-hmm. I always think back on the movie Poltergeist and, and on poltergeist phenomena, the real phenomena. Um, mm-hmm. Because it is the most, um, to sort of uh, mix metaphors and quote The Exorcist, it's one of the most vulgar paranormal displays. Stuff's happening. <laughs> stuff's stuff's yeah. being thrown. Stuff's mm-hmm. making noise. You know, it's 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 what you want to see unless you're the victim of it. It's what you want to see out of a haunting as an explorer, investigator, experiencer. It's, sure. it's almost undeniable something's going on. Yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and since I've known you, mm-hmm. I've heard you talk about two pol- poltergeist cases in particular, and one <laughs> is the one in Humpty Doo. Which <laughs> yes. I, you remembered. <laughs> I will never forget uh, Humpty Doo. Like Humpty Doo. <laughs> it's, it's my favorite place in the world that I've never been. And the other is the Gyra Ghost. name like that. Yeah, no. The Gyra Ghost. And the Gyra Ghost precedes uh, Poltergeist, the movie. It precedes... Uh, the the Enfield poltergeist, the Columbus poltergeist. I mean, this is Australia's most famous poltergeist, and this goes back almost 100 years now to 1921. Wow. So if we're going to be talking about this case, I guess one thing we need to do, and maybe, sadly, people mm-hmm. are more aware about Australia right now and the geography thereof because of the fires. Because of the on. fires, and, yeah. Uh, and it's just tragic what's going on there right now. But, it is. Uh, it's really, really heartbreaking. And uh, in so many ways, I just wish I was there. And uh, I'm very fortunate that family and friends, by and large, aren't affected by this. But, uh, I mean, that's impossible to say. Everyone is affected by this and everyone should be affected by this. It's just massive. It's terrible. It is. The, the, the scale of it is is just astonishing. And the fact that uh, so little was being done about it to begin with and so much climate science denial it's just a really horrible thing and uh, thankfully the rains are, are here now and so all there and uh, 
but instead they're getting flash floods and all kinds of other warnings. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's the, uh, it's, yeah, we have the same problem uh, every time we have a drought as far mm-hmm. as the rains come, but now the ground's yeah. hard and dry. So dry, yeah, yeah. So, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I really, really feel badly for all the folks down there experiencing that, but we're going to we're going to press on and talk about this historic case and hopefully provide a, a a welcome distraction. So Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people might have heard about this case and uh, maybe maybe not so much the town. Well, I think otherwise if not for the Garo ghost, a lot of people wouldn't have heard about the town. Well, where is the town or as uh, one might say, where the hell's Gyra? Yeah. <laughs> it is it's uh north of Sydney, so about maybe six and a half hours north of Sydney. Uh, uh, and on, south of Brisbane. No, I'm thinking about Australia, and mm-hmm. and it's a big, blobby shape. Um, it's a rather attractive shape, really. No, it has it, quite I, a I, I, attractive. Who says blobs are not attractive, Karen? <laughs> Literally nobody. Okay. Well, I, it's it's less less of a blob than North America, anyway. Whoa, uh, North America is based on the face of Lincoln. If you turn it sideways, he's got. Oh. The, the, <laughs> yeah. So, I, who does Australia resemble? So, uh, so Sydney in New South Wales. It's uh, so it's north of Sydney. It is in New South Wales. Uh, so it's in uh, an area called the New England region, and uh, it is south of Brisbane. So by about six six and a half hours, depending on who's driving, um, both ways. And so it's a a little town. It's quite remote. It's between a town called Armadale and another town called Glen Innes. And I went to university in Armadale. So it's um, known for a number of things, among them being the Lamb and Potato Festival, which is currently underway uh, until the end of the month if people want to rush out there to visit that. And uh, it's also known for having one of the highest elevations in Australia. Oh, really? uh, it's about 4,400 feet. So it's, so it's, uh, on, so it's on the east, east side, about halfway between Sydney and Brisbane. Brisbane. Yes, it's a little little further inland, but yeah, uh, yeah it, it is. It's it, so it's still in New South Wales. Is, and, it, uh, is it Brisbane or Brisbane? I don't actually know. Well, we say Brisbane, but I know there's a, a there's a Brisbane in uh, the Bay Area too. Or I've heard Brisbane, so but okay. well, we say Brisbane. Or I Brisbane. say trust the Australians on the Brisbane. yeah. So Brisbane, it is any of those. Yeah, so it's just a, a little town. It's known for uh, farming and for mining. So uh, we had our own gold rush in Australia and there was a lot of gold and silver and antimony that was found there. And to this day, people go around that area, go fossicking, as they call it, for uh, sapphire and sapphires and for diamonds and uh, rubies. Uh, so it's a beautiful area, and but it's just it's a very sleepy little rural town. It's uh, I think Gaira means in uh, – one of the Aboriginal languages, fishing place or a white cockatoo. So I'm not sure which one, but those are the two. That's a pretty planes. big difference, though, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. So who knows which one it is, but the, those yeah. are the, the are, places. Are cockatoos native to Australia? Is that a thing? I, I guess I believe so. Be. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so this this town, uh, when was the gold rush or, or when was the – what what – is, was a, was Gyra a well-established town at this time? Uh, the town was established, I think, in the 1880s. So the gold rush was actually earlier than that. Uh, the population's pretty small. It's something around, hovering around 2,000 people. And I think uh, even going back to the time of the Gyra ghost, it was around that same population, um, maybe even a little bit bigger then because of the mining. Wow. Um, but it, it's... Uh, yeah, just a small place. Okay. So it's is it the kind of like a, a self-sustaining kind of place like were people farming or was there railroad? I don't know much. I don't know much. It's um, astonishing what I don't know about Australia. <laughs> no, that's fair enough and uh you know if I hadn't lived near there, I don't think I would have really heard very much about the town either, but it's uh known for obviously it's lamb and potatoes. Uh, oh, have you heard about their so, festivals? Quite something. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it is. It is. I, I went there a long time ago, probably about twenty years ago, and and uh, as a vegetarian, was rather disappointed. <laughs> um, I had some potato, mm. but I had lamb, and there were kids walking around with little lambs, and it was just a little distasteful for me. But uh, uh, so yeah, the area is uh, lots of farming, um, dairy farms. 
there used to be an abattoir out there as well, uh, which you might call a slaughterhouse. This town is beloved by Conan the Barbarian, who loves to hear about the lamentators of the women. How did you come up with that? I don't know <laughs> what's wrong with me, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So, All right, moving on. It, yeah, it's known for its farming. It's known for its mining, uh, even to this day. But uh, it's just a small town. So uh, basically unremarkable, aside from the lamb, potatoes, and poltergeists. And the, yeah, and the, the, the mining. Oh, and the mining, and the mining. Sorry. Yeah. Lamb, potatoes, probably mining, and then poltergeists. It's got some stuff going for it, yeah. How did this story, the paranormal side, how did this unfold? Okay, well, I guess I should preface this by saying that uh, I've just had an article published in the 14 Times about this this case. Oh, is it, is it out now? It is out now, yes. It's okay. out in the January 2020 issue of Fortean Times. All right. I just and I just popped that into my brand new, I bought from Ikea, magazine organizers. Um, <laughs> cool. <laughs> so I have it upstairs, apparently. Just didn't actually look into the issue. Sorry. <laughs> so that's just come out. And uh, so I've been waiting for this article to come out so that we could talk about this in further depth because it is a story I do hear about over occasionally people will raise it or ask questions. And uh, so I think a lot of skeptics are actually familiar with this, even though it's just a uh, sleepy little town. I think a lot of people have heard about this case. This episode of Monster Talk is brought to you by Audible. Audible's offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Browse through their unmatched collection of titles, select one, and download it. It's that easy. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. When I decided to run ads for Monster Talk, going with Audible was the easiest choice because I use it all the time. I've been an Audible member since 2003, and I use Audible to prepare for many of the episodes for this show. Many of the books we talk about on Monster Talk are available as Audible selections. My first recommendation for Audible for 2020 is tied right to this very episode. It's the 2017 book, The Witch, by Ronald Hutton. Hutton's a historian who has specialized in witch lore and in the ambitious follow-up to his 1999 look at the history of Wicca, Triumph of the Moon. He sets his sight in this book on creating a comprehensive overview of witches across history and across the world. The information-dense volume is engaging enough to be read from cover to cover, yet comprehensive enough to be a valued reference volume for your own witch research. If you want to find the common threads between witches in Africa, Europe, and Asia across hundreds of years of legend and lore, this book is indispensable. That's The Witch by Ronald Hutton. Make it your selection and join Audible today. With Audible, I can listen to my books on my phone or in my car while I mow the grass, and I can hop seamlessly between devices. And thanks to Amazon's WhisperSync, I can read a book on my Kindle and then pick up in the same spot on my morning commute with the audio version. You can select any of Audible's titles when you sign up for your 30-day trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. And I strongly recommend you get started with Ghostland by Colin Dickey. To download your free audiobook while also supporting Monster Talk, just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk and sign up today. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Let's take a uh, sort of a chronological view and walk through the story. Sure, sure. So uh, everything started, funnily enough, on April Fool's Day, so April the 1st, 1921. I bet and, this will come uh, into play. It, it, it might. It, it, <laughs> so, oh, before, uh, before, Actually, before we go any further, this was a question I had after reading the article. Um, sure. Is April 1st a big deal in Australia like it is in the U.S.? Or is... Um, it, it is absolutely acknowledged and recognized every year. So it's not like uh, Halloween. I mean, Halloween's seen as being an, a very American thing, but I believe since I've been out of the country, it's become more and more popular over the years. Um, but absolutely, people will play pranks on people. There's, the only difference is, and I don't know if you are aware of this, but certainly when I discuss it with Matt, he says that that's not a, an American thing. But in Australia, if you 
pull a prank on someone after uh, noon, so after midday, then the joke is on you. So I don't think that's really an American thing where no, you've got to make I'm, sure I'm, that you pull the prank. You can't see this because it's radio, but this is me looking perplexed. <laughs> 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 well, must be must be an Australian take on it, though. But uh, absolutely, April Fool's Day. So you Day. try to cram all your pranks in before noon. In general, I mean that's how I remember things when I was a kid okay. growing up. Anyway, okay. it's good to know. But yeah, that does that does play into the the story somewhat. But again, that's just another theory. Um, so this all happened in a little cottage, just slightly on the outskirts of town. Um, with a, a family, the, the Bowen family or Bowen family, I'd say Bowen family. Um, so there was a, a, a fellow, a council worker, William Bowen and his wife, Catherine, and their three children. And they'd gone to bed that night. So I guess obviously the, the joke was on them because it was that night. <laughs> and uh, so they awoke to the sound of tremendous thumpings and showers of stones. So... Um, there was just this bizarre, inexplicable activity that was taking place. Uh, and so they heard the sounds of, uh, of rocks being thrown onto the roof of the cottage. And I think it was very frightening for all of them. And it basically continued that night into the next day. And uh, when they, they basically invited the Gyra police to come over and take a look at things and see what was happening. Uh, so this proceeded to happen throughout April. And it actually did continue. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but it uh, most of the activity was throughout April, and it just continued. So night after night, and even during the day, um, there was stone throwing and thumpings and knockings and bangings and rappings and all different kinds of, of sounds. And uh, they basically enlisted the police and enlisted the townsfolk and neighbours to come and assist them. They had uh, so over the course of nights, they had more and more townsfolk who would come and form a, a cordon around the house to make sure that no one could enter the house or exit the house without being watched. And these these noises and sounds just continued and really rattled the nerves of the community and rattled the nerves of the family for a, a long period of time. You know, just a quick aside: the roof on the house was a tin roof. Yeah, like a, an iron roof. Yeah, and I don't know, not in America, it's more common, I think, for people to have uh, shingles, which are, you know, typically like a mix of tar paper and asphalt and a few other things. And so having something fall on the roof is not particularly noisy for the average American. Um, but I've had the experience of sleeping under a tin roof and if uh, one, in, in fact, one which had a, a, a tree with acorns, um, and it, <laughs> d- during the wind, you know, an acorn hitting the roof, even a little acorn, makes a disproportionately large noise. And I think when we're we're, we're talking about poltergeist experiences, it's important to sort of set that that tone that mm-hmm. this is not subtle. A stone hitting a roof on a tin roof. Is uh, is is quite noticeable, and very loud. <laughs> yeah, even a small stone can make a very large, outsized kind of noise. So, yeah, sorry, just wanted to sort of set that stage. No, that absolutely needs to be said. And it wasn't only stones falling onto the roof; it was also uh, stones flying through windows. Um, so Breaking one of the, the glass, the quotes, by the way, that's, that's yes. Um, so one of the quotes is that every window in the house in the, the four room weatherboard cottage had been smashed. So by the end of it, and the place was boarded up with wood. Uh, I mean, the place was a mess and you can go online and just Google the Gyra ghost and you'll see lots of fantastic images from that time. Uh, there was a reporter who'd gone out there and had taken photographs of the house and the state that it was in and the family so you can still go and see. I mean, the, the pictures are a little bit blurry, but um, you can still see the damage that was done to the house, and it was extensive. And I imagine, I don't know for sure, but I imagine replacing plate glass in the middle of Australia was probably not an insubstantial expense. Oh, yes. So this activity did actually seem to travel to 
neighbours as well. And so uh, the neighbouring houses were damaged. Uh, and so they were the houses were affected by small stones and rocks all the way through to uh, bricks. And you know, so some of these stones were quite large and all of the stones and rocks were found on the property as well, which is interesting. So there were bricks and, and rocks and stones of, of all sizes, but um, up to, I think, the size of a brick. Wow, that's really malicious. The very next day after the phenomena began, they called in the police and uh, the police experienced the activity as well. There were times where they had uh, isolated members of the family to keep watch on them to see if they were behind all of this and the activity continued. So a lot of the phenomena seemed to surround the uh, daughter, the the eldest daughter in the family, her name was Minnie and she was 12 years old. So she was often isolated and a, a police officer would be sitting with her in her bedroom and suddenly rocks would start falling on the bed and falling through the window. So even though they were keeping watch on her, things continued. I don't want to call it a trope, but it, it does seem to be a common factor that in poltergeist cases, there's often a teenage person at the focus of the, or that's considered to be the focus of the uh, phenomena. Janet Hodgson from the, uh, the, the Enfield poltergeist, and she was, what, about 11 at the time yeah, when it started, I think? Little, yeah. I think a little older than that, but yeah, around there, yeah. And Tina Resch as well with the Columbus poltergeist. She was, what, about 13, 14? Yep. We've talked before about uh, William Roll. Uh, the parapsychologist believing that uh, that this was what we're really seeing is not a ghost or a, a spiritual agency, but rather telekinesis being brought on by sort of pubescence, bringing out telekinetic powers. I, I, but yeah. rather than try to explain it right now, let's keep going through what happened. So the police are on the scene and they, and they see the, the stones and they see the rocks. Mm -hmm. What do they do next? They basically brought in more police officers and they also brought in uh, neighbours and townsfolk and they started surrounding the house. So uh, the interesting thing about this case too is that there we can really piece together the events through contemporary newspaper articles and a lot of these are available on a website called Trove. So the story was really widely reported and documented at the time, not only in Guyra and New South Wales, but throughout the country and also overseas. So it was a, a really an international case in many ways. And uh, so when this happened, the police were on the scene and the neighbours were there and uh, they report that one night there were 40 people surrounding the house and the next night there were 80 people. So this number kept creeping up. They had floodlights on the house. Uh, they were watching the house inten intently to, intensely to see if you know, who was coming and going. So there were lots of different theories about uh, what was happening. One of the early theories was that on the day that this activity began, Minnie, the daughter, the 12-year-old, had been uh, just out in the, the yard, out in the paddock, and a strange, unidentified man had apparently chased her through the paddock and was pelting her with rocks. It doesn't sound like anyone else saw this happen, but she reported that to the police and so for quite some time, that was one of the theories, you know, who was this fellow and um, why had he been chasing her and throwing rocks at her, but he was never found. And you can imagine, too, in a small rural town like that, uh, word would spread pretty quickly if there was a stranger about. So it just seems like a rather unlikely story, but still possible. Just to get back to the, the theories, you know, one of the theories was that it was this strange man. Uh, another theory that the police had was that it was a group of larrikins. And larrikin is a, one, one of those great Aussie English terms, which refers to kind of mischievous, boisterous men, usually young men. Um, so, so that was another one of the theories. Yeah. Um, but then this was right after the end of World War One, and a lot of people had lost loved ones in World War One uh, who'd gone away to war, and this was still at the height of, of spiritualism. Right. So a lot of people were very interested in trying to contact deceased loved ones who died during the war. Uh, and so there were a lot of beliefs around this time that possibly this was a ghost or this was a, a, a poltergeist. Uh, so one of the famous quotes at the time was that there was no human agency involved in this story, that this was something other than, than people. 
So, uh, of course, later we can get into the theories that it was Mimi or that it was her family, um, you know, that even maybe neighbours had perpetrated this against the family because the housing was scarce at the time. Um, but, yeah, certainly one of the big theories was that it was a ghost and in particular a poltergeist. And uh, as you said, they brought spiritualists into the house. So they had a lot of visitors once this story started appearing uh, across the country. There were a lot of people who were interested and who wanted to either see this activity or they wanted to be able to solve it to explain it somehow. And uh, so one of the main characters was a spiritualist guy. Uh, I mean, they had psychic investigators of all different kinds who visited, but there was one guy who was local from a town uh, which is south of, of Armadale called Urala, and this guy's name was Ben Davey. And uh, so he was a spiritualist and he was convinced that he could help the family. So he visited them. And I think there was a reporter there at the time who was chronicling a lot of the events that were going on. And uh, so anyway, he met with the family and he spoke with Minnie and he discovered that there had been a death in the family about three months before. And the, the family situation's kind of complicated. It is. So the, I, I had to read it a couple of times. Yeah, the, the father, William, he was only at this time about 32 years old, um, whereas Minnie's mother was 47. So that's quite a, an age gap, especially at that time. And uh, Minnie had just lost her half-sister, so he was born to her mother and a, um, a, a, her mother's former husband. And uh, she was um, a 21-year-old May Hodder was her name. And um, she died of, it seems like it was reported in the newspapers as being congenital heart failure. But at the time, there was a lot of conspiracy and theories and rumor, as you can imagine, in a small country town, because she had an 18-month-old baby named Clifford. So there was a lot of rumor, uh, rumors that, that this child had been born to May and to William, so that this was... Uh, you know, some kind of a product of a, an illicit affair. Right. And so there were theories that she had killed herself because she was so ashamed uh, or she'd had a botched abortion or something like that. But it, it seems like she did have some kind of heart disorder and we don't know who the father of the child was. I'm sure families just kept that kind of thing close to their chests at that time. But anyway, this spiritualist found out that there'd been a death in the family. So he urged Minnie to communicate with the sister. And at first, Minnie was reluctant to, and she said, oh, I can't talk to my sister, she's dead. And then he continued to try and urge her to communicate, and all of a sudden there were knocks on the walls. So it appeared as though May was trying to communicate with Minnie through knocks, and um, then the spiritualist urged her to try and talk to May. And so they, they had a, a conversation, and I think this is one of the biggest downfalls of the, the entire case is um, this particular conversation that they had, and that is included in the story. I've, I've got that in the, the article. It was a, a conversation that she apparently had with her sister, ultimately in which the sister had communicated to her and said, tell mother that I'm perfectly happy where I am and that your prayers when I was sick brought me where I am and made me happy. Tell mother not to worry. I'll watch and guard over all of you. So I think the fact that Minnie came up with this conversation uh, really does undermine the, the claim that uh, this did happen to her and that she wasn't the cause of it. Oh, really? Okay. Why, why do you think that? Um, well, I think up until that point, she was saying that all of this activity was happening and that she wasn't the source of it. Uh, and then now suddenly she's having this conversation with her sister. and you know, which, that gi we... which gives all the phenomena some kind of agency, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> And she probably felt at that point like she had to do that. Yeah, yeah. Because this was already kind of halfway through April, and I think uh, people were already discrediting the story. I think the, the police were already sick of the case as well. It had just gone too far and for too long. Um, so I think that it kind of justified things in, in her eyes, but to us as skeptics, not. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. 
We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. It also gives it, uh, like, from a narrative perspective, suddenly uh, now it's not just a, 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 an invisible, mysterious ghost or whatever. It's, mm-hmm. oh, it's a family member, and don't worry, she's here to protect us. Yes, which, which is it, kind of at odds with all of the violence. It really is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what happened after that? There were a lot of other psychic investigators that visited the family and they, they really had uh, quite some famous people that came through there. One of them was a, a businessman by the name of Harry J. Moores. And he was actually a, a very close friend of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, Robert Louis Stevenson as well. And I think it's interesting because if you, there are a lot of conflicting stories and there's a lot of information online claiming that it was actually Sir Arthur Conan Doyle who visited the house instead of this colleague of his, Moores, Mr. Moores. Um, so you know, just you get that kind of, you know, telephone. Little, little c- conflation, confusion, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, well, that, it didn't help that the, the and I, I don't know how to add this to the story, but that they made a contemporary movie about the case while the case was still sort of very, very fresh. Yes, there was a movie called The Gyro Ghost Mystery, and it was uh, filmed by John Cosgrove, who was a famous actor and comedian and uh, uh, stunt artist at the time. And so I think that's another thing that really undermines the story too, because he came and, and filmed this movie, which is uh, was described as something like five reels of laughter. So it was intended to be <laughs> intended to be a comedy. Well, what, 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 he names one of the characters. What is it? Uh, uh, not uh, oh, it was, Sh- Sherlock, uh, Sherlock Doyle. Doyle. <laughs> yeah, so was it, that was actually this Mr. Moore. So it was a parody of him. Right, right. And it, the film, unsurprisingly, uh, didn't do too well at the box office. But it's now lost. So it would be great to put a, a call out to listeners if they could try and if they they're interested to try and track down this movie. I think this would be fantastic to uncover this because it's just lost right yeah. now as it currently stands. Uh, but he so he filmed this uh, little kind of documentary comedy uh, and I think even filmed the father talking about how he'd shot at the ghost. And uh, so they were playing themselves in the movie and it was really a, a comedy setting the whole thing up. And to me that kind of undermines the story a bit. I think it, if they were in the midst of this and they were really that distressed and going through that much uh, stress that uh, I think it's unlikely that they would have wanted to. Well, be parried I mean, like true, that. but they probably also needed to earn the money to replace all those plate glass windows, which I, <laughs> That's a possibility. I don't think the owner uh, was too worried about that, though. He thought that uh, it was a fellow named Mr. Cox, and he uh, thought that this was heralding the second coming of Christ. So he, it was foretold in the scripture the, that uh, stones shall fall and windows shall break, which is really amazing Byron. prophecy. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I well, well, but the the one of the interesting things about this case is not just the phenomena, mm-hmm. uh, but how it impacted the sort of mental stability of the community. Suddenly, the community itself became quite terrorized by this this prospect. So, a lot of strange things happened around the the community outside of just the family. Can you talk about yes. that a bit? Yeah, there were a lot of things going uh, on in the community at the time, uh, which mightn't seem like big things nowadays, but certainly were at at that point. 
Uh, so there was a case of an 82-year-old woman named Mrs. Doran. And uh, so it was right around this time, I think a couple of days into the activity, and she'd been seen wandering a paddock somewhere carrying potatoes, I think. And a- and a sheep. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> and so she she was seen wandering with potatoes and talking about how she was going to be taking them back to, to Ireland or something. And so it sounds to me like it was a case of dementia. Um, but at the time, it was said that she disappeared and she was never found. And so that added to the mystery and the stress in the town uh, at that point. But it seems like she was found, I think, about a week later. Unfortunately, they found her body and um, articles of clothing in a river nearby. Yeah. So she uh, had didn't magically disappear. I think she might have had dementia and just wandered off. But that was very stressful to a small community at that time. And at the time, people attributed sickness in the community to the goings-on in the house, and people were arming themselves with guns and other weapons to protect themselves against the ghost because it was hopping to nearby houses. And there'd been a, there were a few accidents as well. So there was one particular case, which I find interesting because some of the reports claim that it was a, a, a little boy who was shot in the head by accident by his brother who thought that he it was a toy gun. Um, but then other, other sites say that it was a, a little girl who was shot. Um, but whoever it was apparently survived the event and just had a, a bullet lodged in the brain. Um, but there were all kinds of accidents and people shooting cattle and dogs and cats and trees and all, all different kinds of accidents were taking place because the this sleepy community. Heightened, yeah, heightened fears in, in, yeah, in they, a small they town. Were used to this kind of thing and it was really just shining a light on the community. And um, so anything that happened was attributed to this ghost. Well, it's interesting to me that, that – that the case follows that sort of classic poltergeist pattern in that at one point they remove many from the scene and the phenomena stops at home but follows many. Yes. So at this point, uh, basically the, the local police had done as much as they could and so the New South Wales state government sent, sent a constable uh, to go and investigate. And he was, he thought that this was silly. This was a waste of his time. And he was pretty quick to say that it was definitely human agency. Uh, and his initial theory was that it might have been a group of kids who were involved in this again, that the whole kind of larrikin theory. He also thought that it was a possibility that uh, because housing was scarce in the area, that the the house was sought after and that this was uh, perpetrated by a number of neighbors who were trying to get the family out. Uh, but then that sounds like a he, Scooby-Doo plot. <laughs> <laughs> it does. So this, this guy from Sydney uh, in the, this main constable, constable Hardy, uh, he got together with the, um, the, the chief of the police in Gyra, a Sergeant Ridge, and they did a stakeout on the house and they actually saw Minnie. I think there was another neighbor who was involved too. I think a Mr. Star. And the three of them actually f- were watching from some distance and saw Minnie throwing rocks at the house. So at this point, they thought they'd solved the mystery. And uh, the, the community was pretty much fed up with the whole story and just so much time and effort and money that had been placed into this and so much stress. So they were really d- willing to put the whole thing to rest and um, she was kind of, I guess, hounded out of Gyra um, because the activity continued into May at this point. And so her family sent her along with uh, the, the baby that she was charged with caring for, her sister May's baby. They were sent to a local town called Glen Innes, which is a reasonably large town, certainly larger than, than Gyra, um, which is a little bit north of there. And the activity continued. So I think it was a couple of days into her visit. The family was sitting down to have having to have uh, supper, and one of the neighbours was visiting too. And suddenly there was a shower of stones that um, fell on the roof of the house and came through the windows. And um, so the whole thing continued, and it continued there from May through to August. And the local constabulary came in again. And they were certainly influenced by 
the activities uh, and the well, the, the evidence that was uh, collected by Constable Hardy and Sergeant Ridge. So they thought this is just a hoax. This is just a prank, a young girl's prank. And uh, she was pretty much hounded out of Glen Innes then and sent back to to uh, Gyra where the activity just kind of ebbed away and eventually disappeared. But it was over that period of April through to about August that it was at its height and uh, that it just suddenly ceased. Wow. So. But there were uh, copycat events too. I think it was just so popular. The story yeah. was so beloved that there were incidents which took place throughout the country. And a lot of people thought that the Gyra ghost was traveling all the way down to Sydney and down to, uh, to Melbourne in Victoria and that it was traveling all the way up to Brisbane in uh, Queensland as well. And so there were a number of interesting cases where people were actually found or caught red-handed throwing rocks. Uh, and these were usually the same people who had complained about the poltergeist in the first place. So they'd reported them to police and then actually been involved in stakeouts only to find out that they were the, the perpetrators of hoaxes. Yeah, I, I I think the um, there's there's part of me that wants to say, well, look, you know, if 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 this is a sociocultural explanation, then obviously mm -hmm. this sort of uh, copycat. I guess the easy way to say this copycat sort of thing is all over the news. Everybody knows if it happens, you get attention, and yeah. there's lots of people that will do things to get attention. Uh, or copy a pattern, that sort of thing. We see this with memes today, which I think is funny. The internet meme, you know, mm -hmm. something's vaguely successful, vaguely popular. It'll it'll start to pick up steam as people copy and copy and copy. And I, I, I'm just fascinated by that as a plausible explanation. It doesn't necessarily mean it is the explanation, but yeah. Well, uh, I would say that you might have had some cases of people who believed in this too, and to try and bring attention, like a kind of pious fraud situation. Yeah. People saying, this this happened, and to try and encourage other people to believe in that same phenomenon. And, you remember when we talked about the Columbus poltergeist, there was the situation where you noticed that like, after people were in a heightened state uh, of, of, of alertness around this kind of thing, that all kinds of things, which might have even been just mundane, normal occurrences are unusual, but still mundane. Mm -hmm. occurrences began to take on special significance you know things fall over all the time yeah. uh, in your house but if if they fall over during the when you're also having rocks fall on your roof it suddenly might be more important or, or a special absolutely and i think that's what was happening with the rest of the town with the case with mrs doran and uh just the the other people falling sick and thinking that, that the the gara ghost is to blame i think people really uh you know see that as a, a kind of like with a lot of vampire stories too, uh, historically with people suffering, livestock dying, um, people falling prey to sickness and, and just attributing it to, to vampires and a similar kind of phenomenon. I don't want to spoil your article because it's really good and people can go out and get a copy of it, which it goes into great detail, has wonderful footnotes. Um, Thank you. But, but if, if you um, – had to explain this, like in a, from a skeptical perspective, what do you what do you think the most rational explanation is for the case? Well, uh, you know, the perspective that most skeptics have today is that uh, Minnie was the not the target so much as the perpetrator, and that her admission, her confession, was was honest and true, and that she was behind all of these events, and she did admit that she had caused some of this activity. I think she'd been uh, tapping a stick against the wall. Uh, she had been throwing rocks. She said that she'd done it to scare her sister-in-law and she had all kinds of explanations. But um, people who are less sceptical, they'll say that she was uh, coerced to confess to the police that they were just sick and tired of this story and they just wanted to close the case uh, other people who say that it was more of a pious fraud situation, that she had uh, initially the activity was was genuine and that then she had caused some of the activity uh, to try and encourage people to believe in what was happening. Um, so you, you've got the whole kind of range. Of yeah. There's probably not a, a, a clear and simple answer. Well, no. I mean, it's impossible to recreate uh, all of the people who were involved are now 
deceased. Um, So all that we have, and we do have a a lot of, um, you know, evidence and a lot of reporting on the story at the time, but it's just so interesting to go through that too because, as I said, it was – it was uh, widely reported around the country and internationally, and yet each story is a little bit different. Each description is a bit different. You know, sometimes that someone who's involved is a uh, is is a boy, or then it's a girl, or they're just the the case is retold in different ways. So it is really hard to get to the the bottom of the story. All that you can really do is to report the phenomena uh, and you know to, to posit some possible causes for it. Um, but you know, it's a lot of people still think that it's a mystery. They think that it's unexplained. Um, you know, but there's just a, a lot to the story, and certainly, I think the article goes through that. It's just not cut and dried. We can just sit here as skeptics and say, "Oh, it's a poltergeist story, a bunch of claims. This is just bullshit." Um, but there is a, really a lot to the story, and so I think that there's probably no one single answer. You know, was it Minnie? Was it her family? Was it locals? Was it something paranormal? Um, I think it's a combination of everything, probably, except for the paranormal bit. So this is one of those cases that I've heard you talk about a long time. Is this one that you knew of as a child? I think it's one I'd heard about. So when I I lived in Armadale for a period of almost five years, I was very interested in this case and going through Gaira, spending time in Gaira. The house that I rented in Armadale was owned by a uh, woman who was a real matriarch of one of the key families in Gaira as well, a sheep farmer. And so it was just interesting to be able to talk to people who had connections to the family. So as I said, everyone is now long deceased. The yeah. house has been renovated and the house in Glen Innes where Minnie was shipped to, uh, that was demolished a number of years ago. So a lot of history has gone. Uh, in fact, Minnie's sister, she died in 2015, and it was shortly after her 104th birthday Wow! that she died, and her name was Mary Ellen Jones. And uh, so when she died, the local newspaper reported that it was really the end of a chapter and that this um, was the close of you know, a period of, of Gaira history yeah. uh, in which the, um, the, the Bowen family were just very notorious for these – supposedly inexplicable events. So people still talk about it today in Gaira. It's the uh, the Gaira Ghosts is the name of the local football team. So there's a, very much a sense of humour about it. But I yeah. would certainly say that when I lived there, and this is going back to the early 2000s, um, there was also a sense of, uh, I guess, small town wanting to kind of close in on themselves and not to talk about it. And even though I'd lived there for a number of years, people didn't really like to talk about it. They thought it was, uh, I guess, a combination of something that was silly, but they were also trying to protect the family. And it was very difficult to find out the location of the house. People really just closed in on themselves and didn't want to talk about where it is. And it's rather interesting because if you go online and try to find the Gyra Ghost house, there are several houses which are claimed to be the actual house of mystery, as it was known. So there are people who say, oh, I lived in this house. This was formerly the Gyra Ghost house, and uh, the place is haunted. And then you find out, no, that's actually not the house. So uh, there's just a lot of folklore surrounding the story, even to this day. It looks like in the article you do have a picture of the real house, and it's still standing. So that's cool. Yes, and well, not only a picture of the current house, but how it looked in its former incarnation and um, – it is the same house. Um, it's it just looks very different, and and the reason that the family did renovate the house was to protect it from uh, the the legend trippers and people who to this day are still fascinated by the story and and try to track down the house. So there is still interest in it, and it's not only local. It's I think national and international. People are still talking about this, and if you go and look it up online, it's been the subject of lots of books. Lots of articles. Um, I would like to think that mine is a, among the one of the most skeptical and carefully researched yeah, pieces it's very on the topic. Yeah, it gives a nice end-to-end coverage. Yeah, it's cool. Thank you. And you know, I tried to tell a story without being, you know, so skeptical that that suddenly it's it's just not interesting. Um, but there are a lot of books out there which are far less skeptical and really do claim that this is a true poltergeist 
occurrence. It's funny because what is a true poltergeist, right? I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, in the sense of having a paranormal, I, no, source, no, I know, you know just, as, as opposed to critical uh, uh, explanations. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty skeptical myself, but it sure seems authentic to me, at least authentically following the pattern of there's probably a kid at the heart of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think a, a, a 12 year old girl, um, uh, and not so much for her um, age or for her, you know, prepubescent state, but so much as just a, a prankster. It's, it, you know, I'll tell you this. It's it's one of those things where no matter how skeptical I get or no matter how much I want to have, you know, empirical proof, I can't help but feel a little bit of sympathy for the kid if, if, a, if a child is um, – doing these things and it blows up way out of proportion for what they expected. And then they feel compelled to keep it going, you know? And I think that's the case here. Yeah. When you, when you look at her situation, I mean, she was 12 years old and she was raising an 18 month old child. Yeah. uh, That was basically left to her by her half sister. She was having to go to school um, I mean, she was under a great deal of stress and there's a, an interesting description of her too. If I can just read this, it's from, uh, one of the reporters who visited the family from the Sunday times, um, and was dispatched to the home to, to get a firsthand account of what was going on. And so he describes her and he says that she was, uh, tall, thin and dark with peculiar, dark, introspective eyes that never seemed to miss any movement in a room. When she speaks to you, she never smiles, and she seems to look beyond or through you. She's not a clever child in the accepted sense, and is backward and in a low standard for her age at school. If quiet and unusual, she seems just a normal little girl in most respects, except that she has a rather uncanny aptitude for anticipating questions, almost before they are asked, and answering them. So, I think it's a rather mean-spirited description of her in some regards. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, the um, the fellow who visited her, Mr. Moores, um, he described her as being a, a clever girl uh, and said that she was, you know, described as being somewhat imaginative. But I, you can just imagine the pressure that she was under having to, to go to school, take care of this kid. Um, you wonder truly what was going on behind the scenes with the family situation as well with that um, that age gap between the, the mother and father. So who knows what her family situation was like. And as you say, uh, that it might have just started out as a prank, just a harmless thing to begin with, and then it achieved a notoriety that she didn't expect. And uh, she was really having to justify that and to, to perpetuate that. Um, but it's interesting in that in her later years, she never talked about it at all. She never talked about the Gyra ghost. Yeah, I imagine kind of like uh, Voira from the Jeff the Talking Mongoose just wanted to put it behind her, you know? Yeah, but um, it was said by members of her family and by friends that she had lifelong psychic abilities. Yeah, it was so, said, wasn't it? <laughs> it? It was. Yeah, it was said that she had the power of telekinesis, and so the baby that she raised, um, the her her niece, um, so who was the the daughter of that baby, once said that she could make a piano play or a chair lift on the other side of the room. And um, her sister as well, the one who died at 104, once said that she could move furniture and lift objects without touching them. So it mm. sounds like this was really, uh, you know, it was, it was quite <sighs> accepted by the family that she had powers. But it was just interesting that it was never talked about it again. She never discussed it with, uh, with journalists or the media. So she went to her grave knowing, knowing the truth. I find a lot of that family lore uh, fairly suspect but uh it certainly makes for good family reunion stories doesn't it yeah yeah (laughs) yeah but her her story did end in tragedy because she was only about uh, 62 years old in 1970 and she was crossing a road outside of armadale and she was knocked down and killed by a passing vehicle yeah that is tragic no it's just sad to think that uh you know that she died that way and that we'll we'll never know the truth i mean certainly we can we can make claims, we can look at the evidence that we do have, um, but it would be really interesting if one day she'd opened up about exactly what had happened. Yeah, I I, I feel the same way about, I don't know why I keep coming back to Jeff, I guess because it's got some parallels, but it, j- just 
when these people have these experiences, wouldn't it be great to get a diary where they just explain everything from their perspective, even if it's credulous, you know, just, it'd be nice, you know, it would. And, and, who knows if uh, there isn't a diary in existence that the family are protecting. Uh, I mean, I think there's a lot more to the story. And in that sense, in that regard, it is a mystery. We'll never know exactly what happened, even though we're skeptics about whether it was paranormal or not. Well, I have to say it's a really cool write-up. I really like it a lot. It's colorful and Thank you. it's thorough and it's available in the latest issue of 40 and Times. Mm-hmm. Um which I, I have to say I'm actually subscribed to for the first time in my life. I've always been a buy-it-on-the-newsstand kind of guy, but they stopped mm-hmm. having it regularly uh, uh-huh. at, my, at my local bookstore. So I uh, went ahead and coughed up the change. Thanks to our Patreon supporters, I could afford <laughs> to do that. So I have to say it's, it's a refreshing uh, change from Skeptic Magazine and Skeptical Inquirer. It's really... It uh, does retain a lot of the fun of these stories without having to tear everything apart. And it still is that skeptical element, the element of critical thinking, but it, it's also Absolutely. just. And I, I think, I think the, the, the people behind it, you know, they, they care about the facts and less so much about the ideology, which is great. But more importantly, they pay their writers, which is yay. <laughs> <laughs> which is very uncommon in this industry. So it's not, a strange not much, world. Yeah. So, and yeah. enough to, to show some respect. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's very professional and we appreciate it. So yeah. 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 But uh, I also just want to add as well that I was inspired by the story of the Gyra ghost to write a short story myself. So it's been out for a couple of months now and it's available on Amazon for Kindle. So the story is called welcome home. And it's really based on the story of the Gyra ghost and we're inspired by events, as they say. Yeah, you've inspired done by a true story. Yeah, right. So you've you've also got a new one based on the Lord Dufferin legend. So I uh, have, yes. So we're going to have to do an episode on that because independently you and I have researched that story and yeah. I think un- uncovered different aspects of that. So we'll have to do an episode on that soon. Yeah, I think that's a it's a fun story. One of those classic crap that scared me as a kid. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've loved that story since I was a kid and and this story too so they're they're all fun stories and uh you know certainly from a historical and folkloric perspective they have a lot of value yes absolutely and I think it'll be fun to talk about researching them because um that's a lot of what we talk about is critical thinking and how to sort of deduce and track down primary sources and figure out Mm -hmm. what's more plausible and um there's some really fun stuff with running that to ground um, oh, so, yeah, yeah let's a, do that. Really interesting case. And, and Lord Dufferin is just such a fascinating character of his time and has really just been lost to history. And we yeah. he's just really known for that uh, urban legend now. And that's about it when he did so much historically. I, it, it, this is, I guess, just in closing to say that it's you know almost 100 years. So almost the 100th anniversary since these events took place. And uh, I just think it has a lot of relevance today and certainly i think it, it did influence a lot of these other key stories that have happened over the past 100 years so it's um it's Indeed. a fun story and it's very touching too in its own way yes yeah no i think it had a lot of pathos yeah for sure monster talk you've been listening to monster talk the science show about monsters i'm blake smith and i'm karen Stolzner. you've been listening to a discussion of the case of the gyra ghost an Australian poltergeist case covered by Karen in Fortean Times. That's in the January 2020 issue. Hopefully you can snag a copy of that from your local newsstand, or if you're a subscriber, you may already have one. Links to the stories Karen mentioned inspired by the events of this case and the one inspired by the strange tale of Lord Dufferin's omen will be in the show notes, but you can find them by just searching on the Amazon Kindle store for Karen Stolzno. Check out our Monster Talk merchandise at monstertalk.org forward slash store where you can find a variety of cool products to show that you're a next-level monster enthusiast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. 
We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. And as always, thank you for listening and for doing your part to support the show. been a Monster House presentation.